This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Fear Not, Be of Good Cheer. In the first half, Camille Franck and Cecil Samuelson share their addresses. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And be of good cheer. Then in the second half, Earl K. Stice speaks on Happily Ever After, lessons from Joseph Smith, Lehi, and the recent accounting scandals. To the paralytic man lying helpless on a bed, Jesus proclaimed, Be of good cheer. To the frightened apostles battling the tempestuous sea, Jesus appeared on the water declaring, Be of good cheer. To the righteous Nephites, subject to an arbitrary law threatening their lives, if the signs prophesied by Samuel the Lamanite didn't occur, the Lord said, Lift up your head and be of good cheer. As Joseph Smith met with ten elders about to be sent out, two by two, to missions fraught with trouble and danger, the Lord announced, Be of good cheer. In each instance, the people had every reason to be anxious, fearful, and hopeless. Yet the Lord directed them toward a reason to rejoice. How does the Lord's admonition of cheer sound when it's applied to you and me in our world today? When economic uncertainties, terrorist threats, and corruption provide top stories for the evening news, where does the good news of the gospel intervene? When we experience personal loss in so many ways and on so many days, what is left to be cheerful about? We find the key to understanding this seeming contradiction in the context of the Last Supper. Speaking to the apostles in his final moments before Gethsemane, Jesus said, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. How was it possible for the twelve to be of good cheer? Elder Neil A. Maxwell asked. The unimaginable agony of Gethsemane was about to descend upon Jesus. Judas's betrayal was imminent. Then would come Jesus' arrest and arraignment, the scattering of the twelve like sheep, the awful scourging of the Savior, the unjust trial, the mob's shrill cry for Barabbas instead of Jesus, and then the awful crucifixion on Calvary. What was there to be cheerful about? Just what Jesus said. He had overcome the world. The Atonement was about to be a reality. The resurrection of all mankind was assured. Death was to be done away with. Satan had failed to stop the Atonement. I wish to focus my remarks today on the role of Christ's enabling power in our ability to feel cheer amid mortal gloom and doom. Misfortune and hardship lose their tragedy when viewed through the lens of the Atonement. The process could be explained this way. The more we know the Savior, the longer becomes our view. The more we see His truths, the more we feel His joy. But it's one thing to know that's the right answer in a Sunday school class, and quite another to experience firsthand a cheerful outlook when current circumstances are far from what we hoped. 
If we would develop faith to apply the atonement in this manner and not merely talk about it, awareness of imaginary finite boundaries inadvertently placed on the Savior's infinite sacrifice can be meaningful. Consider two false assumptions that, if pursued, will block our appreciation and access to the Lord's divine assistance. First is the false assumption that if we are good enough, we can avoid bad things happening to us and those we love. If we can just keep all the commandments and pay an honest tithing, have daily prayer and scripture study, we might be able to appease God, earn His good pleasure, and thereby assure ourselves of His protection from any heartache, accident, or tragedy. When such thinking drives us, We want victory without battle, as Elder Maxwell observed, and expect campaign ribbons merely for watching. So trials will surely come, including when we're trying to do everything right. Elder Richard G. Scott warned, Just when all seems like it's going right, challenges often come in multiple doses applied simultaneously to accomplish the Lord's own purposes in our life that we may receive the refinement that comes from testing. If we hold the belief that God will shield us from tribulation because of our obedience and then adversity strikes, we may be tempted to accuse God of not hearing our prayers, or worse, that He doesn't honor His promises. Obedience to God is not insurance against pain and sadness. Some unpleasant things just come with this telestial turf. Challenges have always been part of God's great plan to test our faith and to stimulate in us growth, humility, and compassion. Heartache and struggle were divinely designed to stretch us to where we have nowhere else to turn but to God. The ground was cursed for Adam's sake. And Eve was promised that her sorrow or hardships would be multiplied. The Apostle Paul acknowledged, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And after leaving comforts of her Jerusalem home to sojourn in the wilderness, the Lord required Sariah to send back all four of her sons to face those who desired her husband's death. Christ's mission was never intended to prevent broken hearts, but to heal broken hearts. He came to wipe away our tears, not to ensure that we would never weep. He clearly promised, In the world ye shall have tribulation. A second false assumption when we face tribulation can be just as destructive to our faith in Christ. We may conclude that hardships come because we haven't done enough good in the world. We may believe that lifelong cheerfulness is achieved through our own management and efforts. When considering tribulation and the Lord's Atonement through this angle, we can look at the scripture, It is by grace we are saved, after all we can do, and deduce that we must first prove our worth through our obedience and our righteousness before the Lord's sacrifice will cover us or His grace enable us. 
Trusting in our own efforts rather than humble acknowledgement of God is reflected in the term self-righteousness. When we look through the lens of our righteousness and seek to take comfort from our efforts, the idea of depending wholly on Christ begins to sound a bit risky. Listen to a series of domino-like sentiments that such a perspective can produce. What if I depend on God, but He doesn't answer me when I need His help right now? And then, with all the serious problems in the universe, why would He have time or interest in my personal crisis? Then again, if I can just organize my life carefully and think smart, I could resist temptation and not have to lean upon the Lord for help at all. What's more, I'll then not be one of those who contributed to his suffering in Gethsemane. If I just use my skills and brain, I can actually help the Lord rather than drawing on his strength. After all, so many people around here are in worse circumstances than I. Unwittingly, when we reason this way, we sound eerily similar to Korahor's humanistic preaching in the Book of Mormon. Remember, but every man fared in this life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospered according to his genius, and every man conquered according to his strength, thereby showing that they had no need for Christ and his atonement. And thus he did preach unto them, leading away the hearts of many, yea, leading away many women, and also men to commit whoredoms. Being fearful and unsettled by the unexpected, our faith in Christ fades in this perspective to gratifying our pride by our vain ambitions. Such thinking easily leads us to justify wrongdoing because we are in control. We know better than others, so sin is not a problem for us. Our efforts focus on personal success to show that we don't need anyone else. If we could just get control over our world, our addictions in all their varieties, our eating disorders, our obsession with thinness, our insistence that our house has to always be immaculate, our fascination with outward evidence of education and success, then do we think we could finally be cheerful? The scriptural listing of women before men in the reaction to Korahor's teachings is curious wording indeed. I don't know all that such wording could imply, but we can at least conclude that women were not exempt and maybe even particularly attracted to Korahor's management of the creature philosophy. Christ declared, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He didn't say, you must overcome the world, or that he overcame the world just for the weak ones who weren't smart enough or strong enough to do it on their own. The Savior said, I have overcome the world. Prophets in every era have testified that Christ's grace is sufficient. Sufficient means enough or as much as is needed. Prophets also remind us of our own nothingness and our indebtedness to Christ, that we are less than the dust of the earth, that without Him we are unprofitable servants, 
and that no flesh can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. He shall make intercession for all the children of men, and they that believe in him shall be saved. The Apostle Paul learned that lesson. Arguably the best prepared Christian missionary this world has ever known. Paul was brilliant in languages, highly educated in the Jewish religion, and well-versed in Greco-Roman culture and philosophy of his day. Drawing on his rich education and superior intellect, he attempted to teach the intellectuals of Athens about Christ as their unknown God, quoting their poets and using their philosophy. While Paul's knowledge and presentation may have been impressive to this philosophical audience, His missionary efforts in Athens were disappointing. From Athens, Paul traveled to Corinth, where he found tremendous success. Later, in an epistle to the Corinthian saints, Paul explained his missionary approach among them, perhaps a rethinking of his experience in Athens. He said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Trusting that the Lord will support us in our trials and give us what to say and do in the moment that we need it can be frightening when we've become accustomed to relying on our own familiar skills. Why was Paul willing to set aside his educational prowess when it would clearly be impressive to investigators of his religion? He explained it himself, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. The LDS Bible Dictionary describes grace as a divine means of help or strength given through the bounteous mercy and love of Jesus Christ, through faith in the Atonement of Jesus Christ and repentance of their sins, individuals receive strength and assistance to do good works that they otherwise would not be able to maintain if left to their own means. The Atonement not only blesses us after we obey, but is actually the power that sustains us while we do the deed. Likewise, Joseph Smith learned, recorded in the 20th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, that according to the grace of the Lord, he received commandments which inspired him and gave him power from on high. Because of Christ's magnanimous grace, He gives us commandments not to curtail and restrict, but to inspire and strengthen us to accomplish and understand all that He invites. When we look through the clarifying lens showing Christ has already overcome the world, the scripture, It is by grace we are saved after all we can do, looks very different. What is all we can do? A group of converted Lamanites called the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's recognized the answer. Their leader wisely taught, 
since it has been all that we could do to repent of all our sins and to get God to take them away from our hearts. These humble saints desire to please God far more than receive their kinsmen's acceptance. They manifested their sincere repentance by bearing their weapons of war and making a covenant with God. We can do likewise. We can admit that we've sinned and need the Lord's redemption. We can confess His power and goodness and our constant need for His sustaining influence. We, too, can bury our weapons of war, tools we are prone to use to survive without Christ that only serve to fortify our pride and self-righteousness, and we can make and keep our covenants with Him. I watched a young student make that connection this semester. After studying the remarkable epistles of the Apostle Paul, she made this comment to the class. Paul taught that the grace of Christ will make up for everything that we lack if we will have faith in Him. During this semester, I was called to teach gospel doctrine in my ward. This was the scariest calling for me because I'm just not one to stand in front of a class, especially for 45 minutes. But I was prepared for my first lesson. As I prepared for my first lesson, I remembered what Paul said about the grace of Christ. She went on to say, So I prepared everything that I could and then intensely prayed that the grace of Christ would make up for all I lacked. What happened was amazing, she said. It was amazing because it wasn't me. The Spirit was so strong and the lesson was powerful because the grace of Christ made up the difference between my preparation and what needed to be taught by the Spirit. His grace is a powerful gift, she said. It is nothing that we earn. Cheerfulness in the scriptural context connotes a divinely assured optimism, a deep trust in God's unfolding purposes, a grounded conviction that God will always keep His promises. When Christ proclaims, Be of good cheer, He's not requesting a naive, Pollyanna-like response to life's cruel twists and turns, nor is he promising a pain-free life of constant bliss. Trial is no respecter of persons. Tragedy and hardship do not discriminate. Our world sees opposition among rich and poor, men and women, the righteous as well as the wicked. And while increasing dishonesty and vanity in our society is self-evident, the Savior specifically prayed that God would not take us out of the world. In this world your joy is not full, He taught us, but in me your joy is full. How else do we learn that true satisfaction is only found by turning away from the world and coming to Christ? Only after fearing the loss of her sons and realizing that her prophet husband's testimony of Christ was not enough to sustain her own, Sariah found the Lord herself and then declared, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath commanded my husband to flee into the wilderness. Yea, and I know of a surety that the Lord hath protected my sons and delivered them out of the hands of Laban and given them power whereby they could accomplish the thing which the Lord hath commanded them. She discovered that Christ's grace 
was sufficient. And when the sons returned to their father's tent, Nephi reported, our father was filled with joy, and also my mother, Sariah, was exceedingly glad. Such gladness and cheer came because her sons returned safely, but also because she had confirmed in her soul that the Lord's power enabled them and her to do good works that they otherwise would not be able to do if left to their own means. After suffering physical and emotional persecution throughout years of missionary labors, Paul landed in a Roman prison and then declared, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. What does this mean for each of us here today? Well, I can start by acknowledging that I have had tribulation from which no one else could deliver me but the Lord. Circumstances I would never happily choose have sent me to my knees and turned me to God. And further, I can anticipate additional trials down the road. Why? Because God loves me and is shaping me to become like Him. While the Lord clearly promises, in the world ye shall have tribulation, life's challenges are rarely the same for you as they are for me. I can also acknowledge that you have challenges that I will likely never experience, challenges and crosses that will be just as stretching for your soul as mine have been and will be for me. I can resist the temptation to assume the role of the Master Physician by announcing to you in your despair, Be of good cheer. I understand exactly how you feel. Being aware that it is from His voice that you and I both need to receive this message if we will be healed. He is the only one who truly understands our sorrow. Only He has felt our personal pain. But I can also come to know the Lord and choose to bear witness of His supernal gift every time I have opportunity to speak or to teach. I can realize that I can do more to help another person find the Lord by admitting my utter dependence on Christ in my actions and in my informal conversations, rather than parading a seemingly perfect outward appearance, which all too frequently communicates I no longer need Him. We are competing against sin, not who needs the Savior less. When we acknowledge that we each face difficulties, that the Savior overcame the world, that He has lifted and strengthened and given vision to each of us in very personal ways, we'll realize that we are never alone. We'll feel a peace within, even though the crises without still rages. We'll be filled with hope and even cheer. The words of one of our sacrament hymns reflects great reason to lift our heads and rejoice. No creature is so lowly, no sinner so depraved, but feels thy presence holy and through thy love is saved. Though craven friends betray thee, they feel thy love's embrace. The very foes who slay thee have access to thy grace. 
Thy sacrifice transcended the mortal law's demand. Thy mercy is extended to every time and land. No more can Satan harm us, though long the fight may be, nor fear of death alarm us. We live, O Lord, through thee. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has indeed overcome the world. As darkness has no power when light appears, so the world cannot overcome or comprehend the light of the world. He is the victor, come to earth with healing in his wings for both ourselves and those who disappoint us. He leads us along even when we don't know all the answers. Like Sariah and the Apostle Paul, who found his matchless love in their distress, we too can know the Savior's grace in our profound need. As the mother hen covers her chicks with her wings, so the Redeemer will surround us with his comprehensive and comforting power if we will come to him. There is room under those wings for every one of us, for he declares, Wherefore? Be of good cheer, and do not fear. For I, the Lord, am with you, and will stand by you. And ye shall bear record of me, even Jesus Christ, that I am the Son of the living God, that I was, that I am, and that I am to come. It is true, we live in a time of terrors and conflict, not only among nations, but within our hearts. But he who is the balm of Gilead is the captain of all creation. Only in him is peace and serenity found. Amid all our mortal gloom and doom, Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Come, let us rejoice. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Amen. You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Camille Franck. And now we'll hear from Cicelo Samuelson for his address, Be of Good Cheer. I hope each of us realizes, at least in part, what a rich blessing it is to be at BYU. We are better prepared to receive and achieve the wonderful advantages and opportunities that life has yet to offer us because of what has happened to us here. As has been increasingly the case in recent years, The world is experiencing more than a little turmoil. Our economy is unsettled, and that's generous, and many of our sacred values are being challenged perhaps as never before. We are confronted regularly in different venues by very pessimistic people who tend to excuse their negativity as, quote, only being realistic. Make no mistake, we live in challenging times. We must recognize, however, that what we are experiencing is no surprise to prophets of the past or those of the present. In fact, much of what is occurring today is fully consistent with prophecy. Without minimizing the risks and uncertainties of our day, I am grateful for the ultimate optimism we can enjoy because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we listen carefully to President Monson and others of our prophet leaders, we can be confident in their positive outlook about our future. One of President Hinckley's favorite responses when confronted with heavy or difficult problems is to say, It will all work out. My promise to you today is that these prophet leaders are right, and things eventually will turn out as they should. Please understand that I am not preaching passivity, nor am I suggesting in any way that each of us needs not to do his or her very best. 
Likewise, I'm not proposing that the troubles of our times are not real or serious. They are, and being concerned is not unreasonable. It is also most appropriate to have positive confidence that things will eventually turn out positively for those who pay attention to proper priorities and heed the counsel of the Lord's servants. For those of you who are married, you know what those priorities are. For those of you not quite there yet, don't give up or be deflected from your appropriate dreams. I personally take great comfort from this promise of the Lord found in the 64th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, quote, but all things must come to pass in their time, close quote. Perhaps, unfortunately, we might think their time or the Lord's time might not fit our own presently conceived timetables. For those of you who have accepted employment or positions for further education, I encourage you to do your very best in this competitive world. For those of you still searching for the perfect situation or any job at all, I encourage you to be wise, thoughtful, and relentless. For those of you who will be turning your full attention to home, children, or the support of your spouse, you will need to do all of these things and more. Whatever your circumstance, it will work out well eventually if you do your best to cause it to happen. Sometimes these trials are blessings in disguise, and what the Lord may have in store for you later could be dramatically better than your current conception of optimal achievement. I am impressed by the counsel of Jesus given frequently and in varying circumstances to be of good cheer. It is true that He never minimized problems, challenges, or difficulties. Indeed, He often prophetically predicted them. It is also true He always placed the seemingly negative in a positive context for those willing to trust, follow, and obey Him. I would not be surprised if He were to send a message directly to us today in the midst of our interesting circumstances. It would be to be of good cheer. His counsel also would never be to forget the basics or the promises He and the Father have made to those who honor and obey them. In addition to the expertise, continent, and competence, specialized skills, and broad educational achievements you have attained while at BYU, I expect with some very good evidence that you have also strengthened your faith and testimonies in the things of highest value and most lasting importance. Both the mission and aims of your BYU education have been crafted precisely to optimally prepare you to deal properly with the difficulties you will face both proximately now and throughout your future lives. Keep the big picture in mind. Remember to exercise your faith and carefully prioritize your time and your efforts. Remember, as Jesus counsels us, to be of good cheer. He also asks us to keep His commandments and love one another as He has loved us. Please accept my sincere congratulations on your achievements. Know that you have our confidence as you take the next exciting steps in your journey of life that will include growth, service, challenges, and ultimately great joy as you live as you know you should. I leave my blessing and best wishes with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Fear Not, Be of Good Cheer. We've just heard from Cecil O. Samuelson. After the break, we'll return with Earl K. Stice for Happily Ever After, lessons from Joseph Smith, Lehi, and the recent accounting scandals. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Fear Not, Be of Good Cheer. Next is Earl K. Stice, BYU Professor of Accounting at the time of this address, 
titled Happily Ever After, Lessons from Joseph Smith, Lehi, and the Recent Accounting Scandals. The title of my remarks is Happily Ever After. If you don't remember anything else that I say, please remember the following three points. First, Happily Ever After does not happen without continuing effort. Second, we should not get discouraged when our careful plans and solutions don't always lead to calm, clear sailing. And third, don't assume that the lives of those around you are cloudless and sunny just because the sun is shining where you are. Now, I teach accounting. I love accounting. Corporate accounting scandals the past couple of years have generated both good news and bad news for accountants. The bad news is that the entire field of accounting has now been tainted. For example, the name Arthur Anderson, which for 89 years represented professionalism and excellence, is now the punchline of late-night comedians' monologue jokes. And in my own home, there has been a troubling but subtle Increase in scrutiny from my children when asking me for money for uh, household chores or for lunch money. So they'll still take a check from my wife. But with my being tainted by this whole accounting thing, uh, my credit rating is down in their eyes. And they prefer to receive payment from me in cash. Now the silver lining for accountants in all of this is that everyone has been reminded how important accounting and accountants are. Without unbiased, timely, and accurate financial reports, our capitalist system just doesn't work very well. For example, without reliable financial reports, bankers are more uncertain about the ability of a company to repay a loan. This increased lender's risk makes it harder for companies, especially small companies, to get loans. In addition, the investor crisis in confidence sparked by the relentless barrage of accounting scandals in 2001 and 2002 helped lower stock values in the United States by 20 percent. That's a $2 trillion loss in wealth for U.S. investors. Those of you who have dismissed accountants as bean counters must now acknowledge that those are pretty important beans. So what were the underlying causes of these accounting scandals? Among the many candidates, let me mention two, greed and bad accounting rules. Now, greed has been with us for a long time. In Moses chapter 5, we read that Cain learned from his mentor, Satan, that he might murder and get gain. After Cain slew his brother Abel, he gloried in what he accomplished and said, I am free. Surely the flocks of my brother falleth into my hands. With his ill-gotten wealth, Cain saw himself as being financially free from money worries. But this feeling of freedom was almost surely short-lived. Greed is insatiable. And it probably wasn't long before Cain looked with envy on other flocks and fields. In fact, his greed ensured that he would never be financially free. With the accounting scandals, we have seen greed in the corporate boardroom. We have seen greed among bankers who knowingly finance some pretty unsavory plans, and we have seen greed among employees who have been more than willing to turn a blind eye to rampant corporate deceit because that deceit was helping to boost the value of the shares that they had in their own 401k plans. We have seen greed among auditors who didn't blow the whistle on financial accounting fraud for fear of losing business of lucrative clients. And we have seen greed from attorneys, no surprises there, who chalked up many billable hours advising their corporate clients how to carefully structure their deceptive financial dealings and who have chalked up even more billable hours helping to clean up the mess that they helped create in the first place. 
Now, for government regulators and concerned uh, people in the business community eager to fix the accounting scandals, greed is not a very promising target. Greed is with us for the long haul and cannot be legislated or regulated out of existence. So if greed can't be eliminated, the next alternative is to improve the accounting rules and the auditing practices. The most visible result of this effort is the Sarbanes-Oxley Act passed by Congress in 2002. The provisions of Sarbanes-Oxley include, for example, the requirement that all large companies in the United States develop a code of executive ethics and that the head of each company personally vouch for the reliability of the company's financial reports. In addition to Sarbanes-Oxley, the detailed accounting rules governing U.S. companies have been actively reexamined in order to close the loopholes that the accounting scandals have revealed. Now, the hope in all this is that the accounting problems will be solved once and for all and that the U.S. business community can live happily ever after. This is wishful thinking. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley and the individual efforts of good business people and accountants around the country have made things better, but let's not kid ourselves. There will be more accounting scandals. The underlying problem of greedy managers still exists, and these managers will find ways to circumvent and exploit any set of accounting rules. So is there no hope? Well, of course there's hope. There's only hope if we remember that happily ever after doesn't happen through a single event, a single congressional act, or a one-time overhaul of the accounting rules. The economic environment evolves. Creative accountants will cook up new ways to deceive, and a new generation of investors will forget the expensive lessons of the past. Accordingly, Congress, regulators, and the accounting profession have to actively seek out and solve new problems as they arise. We make a mistake by getting discouraged when a past answer fails to provide a solution to a future question. Life is about learning from the past and then relishing the opportunity to generate new answers to new questions as they arise. Ultimately, the reliability of our financial reports will be greatly enhanced by our experiences with Enron, WorldCom, Arthur Anderson, and the rest not so much by the one-time corrections made in direct response to the scandals, but more through continuing application of the lessons learned through those scandals. This is an important point, that happily ever after is a continuing process and not the result of a one-time event. And this point is illustrated over and over in the scriptures. Let me give you a few of my favorite examples. As a 14-year-old boy in 1820, Joseph Smith had thought that he had a fairly straightforward question to ask the Lord. In his history, Joseph mentioned three religious denominations that were prominent in the area in which he lived, and he wanted to know which of those three he should join. I believe that Joseph wanted to join one of those churches and then live happily ever after. Instead, he was told that he must join none of them. Not only did Joseph not get a resolution to the which church is right question, but he now had the added challenge of ridicule because he affirmed that he had seen a vision. Three years later, Joseph again went to the Lord with a straightforward request as follows. After I had retired to my bed for the night, I betook myself to prayer and supplication to Almighty God for forgiveness of all my sins and follies, and also for a manifestation to me that I might know my state and standing before him, for I had full confidence in obtaining a divine manifestation as I previously had one. Joseph simply wanted to know where he stood with the Lord. And he certainly wasn't expecting a visit from Moroni to tell him of a book deposited, written upon gold plates. The life of Joseph Smith seems to be a series of these 
unforeseeable developments, each of which Joseph had to accept on faith without fully understanding where it would lead, from New York to Ohio to Missouri to Illinois to martyrdom. And when Joseph cried out to the Lord to better understand his rocky path, he was told, Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Thy days are known, and thy years shall not be numbered less. Therefore, fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. And what can we learn from Joseph's experiences? Yes, he did live happily ever after, but he had to wrestle with scoffers and false brethren and wickedness and laziness and disbelief until his death. And I'm sure that he faces these same challenges in his continuing ministry beyond the grave. How foolish and tragic it would have been for Joseph to have given up in discouragement in 1825 because his heavenly manifestations in answer to prayer in 1820 and 1823 had not removed all of his life's challenges. A father, Lehi, lived in a time of great wickedness in the city of Jerusalem. In Chronicles chapter 36, we read the following about the reign, the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. He, Zedekiah, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, but they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Now, in these frightful circumstances, Lehi prayed unto the Lord for his people, his family, his friends, and all of the people of Jerusalem. And as any of us would hope, I'm sure that Lehi hoped that the Lord would direct him how to fix these problems once and for all. And as any of us would be willing, Lehi was willing to do whatever the Lord directed. Well, the Lord directed him in something that turned out not to be a one-time fix, but instead resulted in a lifetime of preaching, teaching, and surprisingly traveling. Years later, in his new home, in the promised land across the sea, thousands of miles from Jerusalem, Lehi must have looked back and smiled at the completely unexpected way in which that initial prayer was answered. He was called to preach to a murderously wicked people in Jerusalem, then instructed to take his family and flee into the wilderness, then to travel across the most barren stretch of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, being led by a mysterious compass, and then finally to trust the fate of his family to an ocean voyage on a boat built by a first-time shipbuilder named Nephi. Now, yes, Lehi did live happily ever after, However, remember that this was not without relentless effort. Lehi and his party were faced with a lack of food, and this problem wasn't solved once and for all on the occasion when Lehi made a new bow and new arrows. Lehi sorrowed because of the rebelliousness of Laman and Lemuel, and he had to watch them repent and then rebel again and again. But he continued preaching to his wayward sons right to the end. Lehi knew that there was no end to the works of the Lord. And so there is no end to the work of his servants. Lehi pressed forward with faith in the answer to the prayer that he had offered back in 1 Nephi chapter 1. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. And because thou art merciful, thou wilt not suffer those who come unto thee that they shall perish. Lehi did come unto the Lord. And because he continued to come to the Lord throughout his life, in spite of unforeseen hardship and discouragement, he lived happily ever after. 
In Luke chapter 15, we read Christ's beautiful parable of the prodigal son. The parable concludes as follows. And he, the father, said unto him, the elder brother, Son, thou art with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Now this is a happily ever after conclusion, if I've ever heard one. The prodigal is back. The elder brother has gently been shown the error of his ways, and the father has his two sons. Happily ever after. But let's continue with that scene. That night, after the fatted calf leftovers have been put in the refrigerator, and everyone falls into a peaceful sleep, they arise the next morning. Is there anything left to be done? Or do they just live happily ever after? Well, let's consider each of the three main characters. The prodigal himself has made great strides by humbling himself and returning to the houses of his father, but there's a huge amount of follow-through that remains to be done. The prodigal has to settle down, show some responsibility, and work some long hours in those fields by the side of his elder brother. The elder brother has been taught an important lesson by his father, but resentment doesn't disappear overnight. Forever after, when there isn't sufficient money to hire additional laborers, or buy new tools, he must stop his mind from thinking back on the family savings, bundled up, hauled off, and wasted by his younger brother. As he makes himself serve his younger brother, day by day he will see toleration grow into appreciation, into friendship, and finally into love. And what about the father? Maybe he needs to be more aware of showing outward gratitude to his older son who is worked faithfully in the fields those many years. See, the return of the prodigal son is just the beginning. It's not the end. There will be bumps in the road as the father and his two sons implement for the rest of eternity the lessons they learned on that joyous day when the prodigal returned. And those bumps won't be so troubling if the three of them remember that happily ever after means happily dealing with the inevitable bumps that we encounter. Now think about some of the happily ever after moments in our lives. Temple marriage the arrival of a child, the receipt of a mission call, or the baptism of a child or a new convert. The joy at these moments is almost overwhelming. But in this joy are the seeds of danger, if we have unrealistic expectations about what will come next. Now, you students out there, write yourself a note. On your hand, in your day planner, in your palm pilot, write it somewhere, reminding yourself that the innocent joy that we are bathed in during these happily ever after moments is supposed to recede just a little so that we can roll up our sleeves and get to work. Savor the joy of the moment, but be realistically prepared for the ups and downs that surely lie ahead. Now let me illustrate what I mean uh, by talking about the joy associated with the arrival of a child. Some of you experience the joy of holding the newborn son or daughter in the hospital. The joy is no less when you hold it an adopted child for the first time. Now, if your life were a movie, uh, this is the moment when the music would swell and the image would grow soft and slowly fade and beautiful words and a beautiful flowing script and say, oh my heavens, it's a little boy. (laughs) So let's stop the music and think about this for a moment. There is a 50-50 chance that the child in your arms will be a boy. Now, more likely than not, that little boy is going to have an inexplicable fascination with fire and with sharp sticks. (laughs) He is going to be able to create a blowtorch or a bomb out of common household supplies. I know this 
from personal experience with my own two sons, one of whom is sitting right here. He's the blowtorch one. Now, I'm not going to list the common household supplies that can be used for explosive purposes because half the audience, the men, would remember nothing else that I said except that list. So back to holding that little boy in the happily ever after moment, we realize that it's not going to be a smooth happily ever after. Yes, but what if the child's a little girl? Well, that's going to bring its own set of challenges much more complex than this, much more complex than the straightforward foolishness perpetrated by little boys. For one thing, that little girl may very well bring home one of those little boys one day, convinced that he should be her eternal companion. And in the meantime, she will jam up your phone lines, no matter how many there are, with conversations that started in school, that continue by phone at night, and then will be resumed in school the next day. These are truly 24-7 conversations. So rearing a child, boy or girl, is hard. It's hard. Serving as a full-time missionary out on the streets day after day is hard. Being married and learning to set aside your selfishness for the good of the eternal partnership is hard. And we sometimes make these precious activities harder by unreasonably believing that we are failures unless Every day of our lives is an error-free, fun-filled extravaganza that is leading on a straight course without any dips, without any turbulence, straight to the celestial kingdom. Sometimes there are dips. Sometimes there's a substantial amount of turbulence. Dips and turbulence are normal and are not signs of personal weakness of character. As an example of turbulence, allow me to give a brief synopsis of the history of family scripture reading in the Stice home. Now, my wife Ramona and I have seven children. We have used a wide variety of approaches to family scripture reading over the years. We have used individualized reading charts, and as an accountant, I love charts. We have colored pictures. We have focused on scripture discussion rather than just reading, and we've also done the traditional one-verse-at-a-time family reading circle. We have read sitting up at the breakfast table. And we have read with people sprawled in various postures on the family room floor and on the couches. I have heard many verses read by sleepy, muffled voices, barely able to escape from under thick blankets on a cold winter morning. So we've done all those things. And with all this experience, one would think that the Stice family has finally got this scripture reading thing down and that we can proceed happily ever after. Well, two months ago, we added two new little girls to our family. It had been 12 years since we had last changed a diaper. And now with these two babies at once, we feel like we're changing two or three hundred diapers a day. (laughs) To put it mildly, our family routine has been thrown for a loop. And once again, we are regrouping to work out the logistics of family scripture reading. And sure, there's a little frustration because we are back dealing with an issue that I thought we had settled once and for all. I thought that as far as family scripture reading goes, we were going to live happily ever after. And we will live happily ever after as we cooperate to enlarge our family circle to include two new babies in our scripture reading. And as I look at those two little girls, I wonder, will they like charts? I don't know. I'll find out. Our experience with family scripture reading also indicates that this continuous, 
patient effort to make sure that we do live happily ever after pays off. A couple of years ago, my daughter Ryan was invited to a party. Now, from the description of the activities that were planned at this party, it was clear to her that the standards outlined in the for the Strength of Youth pamphlet were not going to be followed. She reports that the first thought that came into her mind was the following. I can't go to a party like that. My family reads the scriptures in the morning. She gains spiritual power from this simple thing that we do, and we have to stay on top of to make sure that we do live happily ever after. Now, I would like to make one concluding point. Just as it is important to remember for us that happily ever after is an ongoing process, we should also remember that it is an ongoing process for everyone we meet. Now, this is hard to remember because people don't tend to go out of their way to show us the storms and struggles in their own lives. Our optimism and faith about our ability to deal with our challenges sometimes makes us overly philosophical about the challenges faced by others. To illustrate this point, I'm going to tell you a sailing story. My wife's brother, Ray, had a 20-foot sailboat that he kept on Lake Ontario in upstate New York. He consented to my accompanying him on a cruise from Braddock's Bay, which is just a little west of Rochester, to Sodus Bay, which is about 30 miles east of Rochester. And we set out on a beautiful, sunny summer morning. The winds were coming lightly out of the west, and to my inexperienced eye, it looked like a perfect day for sailing. However, because the winds had been steady out of the west for several days, the surface of the lake was undulating in long, lazy swells. And after a couple of hours of rhythmically going up and down and up and down, I was growing increasingly apathetic about this cruise, this boat, my brother-in-law, and large bodies of water in general. Ray saw the signs of distress, and he wisely put me to work, manning the rudder. I had to be alert because the long swells had a tendency to push the back of the boat, and for you sailors, okay, that's the stern, to the right, the starboard, and this would put us crossways to the swells, slowing our progress and, in my novice opinion, threatening to tip us over. So I gallantly manned my post there at the rudder until my mild surprise... The rudder came loose from its attachment points on the stern of the boat. I pulled the wooden rudder up into the boat and intelligently called to Ray, Is this supposed to come loose like this? Uh, He had been relaxing, sunning himself on the foredeck, but the sight of me holding up the rudder spurred him to frantic action. He scrambled back to me, grabbed the rudder, and leaned over the stern to try to reattach the thing. His haste stemmed from the fact that we were only 300 yards from shore, and those gently rolling swells were now driving this rudderless sailboat inexorably toward the rocks. I remember those anxious moments very well. There wasn't anything that I could do, really, to help him, so I had plenty of time to look around and think. Now, looming large in my thoughts was the fact that I didn't know how to swim. I looked around at the lake, and I looked at the shore, and I was struck by what a beautiful day it was. We were close enough to the shore that I could see people pulled off the side of the road. I thought they were probably uh, having a picnic, chewing on a drumstick, looking out at us with envy, saying, Wow, look at those two guys out on that sailboat. What a beautiful day for a sail. Meanwhile, a short distance away, there we are fighting for our lives. Well, we lived. Ray, 
Ray fixed the rudder. We made it to Soda Spay, where we spent two days living on the boat, riding out a storm and exploring. We had been in real danger when that rudder came loose. And the fact that other people were happily picnicking just 300 yards away, admiring our sailboat, didn't lessen our danger at all. So if your life is currently in the picnic phase and all things are going well, don't assume that all is well in those pretty sailboats that surround you. The sun may be shining, but the people in those boats could still be in extreme danger, and they may not feel comfortably coming out on deck and shouting for help. Sometimes our personal optimism causes us to overlook the real struggles that are going on in the lives of people right next to us. But to summarize, allow me to review my three main points. Happily Ever After does not happen without continuing effort. For example, the financial reporting system in the United States has been improved because of the recent accounting scandals. But regulators, accountants, and the investing public must be forever watchful to counteract the development of new techniques for fraud and accounting deception. Two, we should not get discouraged when our careful plans and solutions don't always lead to calm, clear sailing. Joseph Smith, Lehi, and even the Stice family have learned that happily ever after means pressing forward with faith, not with discouragement, while experiencing life's unforeseeable twists and turns. And three, don't assume that the lives of those around you are cloudless and sunny just because the sun is shining where you are. Look up from your own peaceful picnic and be sensitive to the Spirit to tell you which of those nearby sailboats could really use some help. Now, may we all live our lives happily ever after, is my humble prayer in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Fear Not, Be of Good Cheer, with thoughts from Camille Franck, Cecil O. Samuelson, and Earl K. Stice. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.